Welcome back to the book podcast and our journey with Proust. And today we're going to continue with the last part here of the overture and the scene when Marcel's mother has come up to his bedroom and they saw that he was very unhappy with not having the goodnight kiss this particular evening because of the guest of Mr. Swan. And now the mother is going to get a book and then read a little bit for the little boy. So it continues. I was only too delighted, and Mama went to find a parcel of books in which I could not distinguish, through the paper in which it was wrapped, any more than its squareness and size, but which, even at this first glimpse, brief and obscure as it was, bade fair to eclipse already the paint box of last New Year's Day and the silkworms of the year before. It contained La Mar au Diable, François Le Champy, La Petite Fadette, and Le Maître Sonneur. My grandmother, as I learned afterwards, had at first chosen Musel's poems, a volume of Rousseau and Indiana. For while she considered light reading as unwholesome as sweets and cakes, she did not reflect that the strong breath of genius must have upon the very soul of a child an influence at once more dangerous and less quickening than those of fresh air and country breezes upon the body. But when my father had seemed almost to regard her as insane on learning the names of the books she proposed to give me, she had journeyed back by herself to Joy la Vicomte, to the booksellers, so that there should be no fear of me not having my present in time. It was a burning hot day, and she had come home so unwell that the doctor had warned my mother not to allow her again to tire herself in that way, and had there fallen back upon the four pastoral novels of George Sand. My dear, she had said to Mama, I could not allow myself to give the child anything that was not well written. The truth was that she could never make up her mind to purchase anything from which no intellectual profit was to be derived, and, above all, that profit which good things bestowed on us by teaching us to seek our pleasures elsewhere than in the barren satisfaction of worldly wealth. Even when she had to make someone a present of the kind called useful, when she had to give an armchair or some table silver or a walking stick, she would choose antiques, as though the long destitute had effaced from them any semblance of utility and fitted them rather to instruct us in the lives of the men of other days than to serve the common requirements of our own. She would have liked me to have in my room photographs of ancient buildings or of beautiful places. But at the moment of buying them, and for all that the subject of the picture had an aesthetic value of its own, she would find that vulgarity and utility had too prominent a part in them, through the mechanical nature of their reproduction by photography. She attempted, by a subterfuge, if not to eliminate altogether the commercial banality, at least to minimize it, to substitute for the bulk of it 
what was art still to introduce as it might be several thicknesses of art instead of photographs of Charles Cathedral or the fountains of Saclon or of Vesuvius she would inquire of Swan whether some great painter had not made pictures of them and preferred to give me photographs of Chartres Cathedral after Croix, of the fountains of Saint-Claude after Hubert Robert, and of Vesuvius after Turner, which were a stage higher in the scale of art. But although the photographer had been prevented from reproducing directly the masterpieces or the beauties of nature, and had there been replaced by a great artist, he resumed his odious position when it came to reproducing the artist's interpretation. Accordingly, having to reckon again with vulgarity, my grandmother would endeavor to postpone the moment of contact still further. She would ask Swan if the picture had not been engraved, preferring, when possible, old engravings, with some interest of association apart from themselves, such, for example, as show us a masterpiece in a state in which we could no longer see it today, as Morgan's print of the Cenacolo of Leonardo before it was spoiled by restoration. It must be admitted that the results of this method of interpreting the art of making presents were not always happy. The idea which I formed of Venice from a drawing by Tizian, which is supposed to have the lagoon in the background, was certainly far less accurate than what I have since derived from ordinary photographs. We could no longer keep count in the family when my great-aunt tried to frame an indictment of my grandmother of all the armchairs she had presented to married couples, young and old, which on a first attempt to sit down upon them had at once collapsed beneath the weight of their recipient. But my grandmother would have thought it sordid to concern herself too closely with the solidity of any piece of furniture, in which could still be discerned a flourish, a smile, a brave conceit of the past. And even when in such pieces supplied a material need, since it did so in a manner to which we are no longer accustomed, was as charming to her as one of those old forms of speech in which we can still see traces of a metaphor whose fine point has been worn away by the rough usage of our modern tongue. In precisely the same way, the pastoral novels of George Sand, which he was giving me for my birthday, were regular lumber rooms of antique furniture, full of expressions that had fallen out of use and returned as imagery, such as one finds now only in country dialects and my grandmother had bought them in preference to other books, just as she would have preferred to take a house that had a gothic dovecot or some other piece of antiquity as would have a pleasant effect on the mind, filling it with a nostalgic longing for impossible journeys through the realms of time. Mama sat down by my bed. She had chosen François Le Champy whose reddish cover and incomprehensible title gave it a distinct personality in my eyes and a mysterious attraction. 
I had not then read any real novels. I had heard it said that George Sand was a typical novelist. That prepared me in advance to imagine that François Le Champy contained something inexpressibly delicious. The course of the narrative, where it tended to arouse curiosity or melt to pity, certain modes of expression which disturb or sadden the reader and which, with a little experience, he may recognize as common form in novels, seemed to me then distinctive. For to me, a new book was not one of a number of similar objects, but was like an individual person, unmatched and with no cause of existence beyond itself, an intoxicating whiff of the peculiar essence of François Le Champy. Beneath the everyday incidents, the commonplace thoughts and hackneyed words, I could hear or overhear an intonation, a rhythmic utterance, fine and strange. The action began. To me, it seemed all the more obscure because in those days, when I read to myself, I used often, while I turned the pages, to dream of something quite different. And to the gaps which this habit made in my knowledge of the story, more were added by the fact that when it was Mama who was reading to me aloud, she left all the love scenes out. And so all the odd changes which take place in the relations between the miller's wife and the boy, changes which only the birth and growth of love can explain, seemed to me plunged and steeped in a mystery, the key to which, as I could readily believe, lay in that strange and pleasant-sounding name of Champy, which draped the boy who bore it, I knew not why, in his own bright color, purpurate and charming. If my mother was not a faithful reader, she was, nonetheless, admirable when reading a work in which she found a note of true feeling by the respectful simplicity of her interpretation and by the sound of her sweet and gentle voice. It was the same in her daily life, when it was not the works of art, but men and women whom she was moved to pity or admire. It was touching to observe with what deference she would banish from her voice, her gestures, from her whole conversation, now the note of joy which might have distressed some mother who had long ago lost a child, now the recollection of an event or anniversary which might have reminded some old gentleman of the burden of his years, now the household topic which might have bored some young man of letters. And so, when she read aloud the prose of George Sand, prose which is everywhere redolent of that generosity and moral distinction, which Mama had learned from my grandmother to place above all other qualities in life, and which I was not to teach her until much later to refrain from placing in the same way above all other qualities in literature, taking pains to banish from her voice any weakness or affectation which might have blocked its channel for that powerful stream of language. She supplied all the natural tenderness all the lavish sweetness which they demanded to phrases which seemed to have been composed for her voice and which were all, so to speak,
within her compass. She came to them with a tone that they required, with a cordial accent which existed before they were, which dictated them, but which is not to be found in the words themselves. And by these means she smoothed away, as she read on, any harshness there might be or discordance in the tenses of verbs, endowing the imperfect and the preterite with all the sweetness which there is in generosity, all the melancholy which there is in love, guided the sentence that was drawing to an end towards that which was waiting to begin, now hastening, now slackening the pace of the syllables, so as to bring them, despite their difference of quantity, into a uniform rhythm, and breathed into this quite ordinary prose a kind of life, continuous and full of feeling. My agony was soothed. I let myself be borne upon the current of this gentle night on which I had my mother by my side. I knew that such a night could not be repeated, that the strongest desire I had in the world, namely, to keep my mother in my room through the sad hours of darkness, ran too much counter to the general requirements and to the wishes of others for such a concession as had been granted me this evening to be anything but a rare and casual exception. Tomorrow night I should again be the victim of anguish and Mama could not stay by my side. But when these storms of anguish grew calm, I could no longer realize their existence. Besides, tomorrow evening was still a long way off. I reminded myself that I should still have time to think about things, although that remission of time could bring me no access of power, although the coming event was in no way dependent upon the exercise of my will and seemed not quite inevitable only because it was still separated from me by this short interval. Okay, so this was uh, <laughs> three very long paragraphs. Um, it's interesting to note here just uh, how Proust is describing his experience of literature as a young boy, because this is also very much reflected in his own writing style as an adult person. And there's a kind of a meta uh, reference in the way he's describing how he is perceiving now this, these stories and kind of adding to them when he's reading George Sand and what he later will reveal that is some of the point of his style of writing is that as he keeps detailing these stories from everywhere around in his life from the earliest age until his fully adult life is so that when you're reading it it will also remind you of your own uh, scenes and stories from your own past and thereby you can rediscover things in yourself and understand your own life story as well as Marcel's story. So this is something that's becoming gradually more, um, kind of he's going to show this more and more as we, we go through the different stages in his development from a little boy through adolescence, young adult, and to full adulthood eventually. And then, and so it was for a long time afterwards when I lay awake at night and revived old memories of Combray, I saw no more of it than this sort of luminous panel, sharply defined against a vague and shadowy background, 
like the panels, which a Bengal fire or some electric sign will illuminate and dissect from the front of a building, the other parts of which remain plunged in darkness. Broad enough, at its base, the little parlor, the dining room, the alluring shadows of the path along which would come Monsieur Swann, the unconscious author of my sufferings, the hall through which I would journey to the first step of that staircase, so hard to climb, which constituted all by itself the, the tapering elevation of an irregular pyramid, and at the summit, my bedroom, with a little passage through whose glazed door Mama would enter. In a word, seen always at the same evening hour, isolated from all its possible surroundings, detached and solitary against its shadowy background, the bare minimum of scenery necessary, like the setting one sees printed at the head of an old play for its performance in the provinces, to the drama of my undressing, as though all Combray had consisted of a two floors joined by a slender staircase, and as though there had been no time there but seven o'clock at night. I must own that I could have assured any questionnaire that Combray did include other scenes and did exist at other hours than these. But since the facts which I should then have recalled would have been prompted only by an exercise of the will, by my intellectual memory, and since the pictures which that kind of memory shows us of the past preserve nothing of the past itself, I should never have had any wish to ponder over this residue of Combray. To me, it was in reality all dead. Permanently dead? Very possibly. Okay, so we're going to stop here. So now we had a, sort of a natural stop here when he's zooming out of his memories and he's having some reflections about the nature of memory in itself and also how kind of forcing the memory would make it different than the authentic real memory, this involuntary memory that suddenly comes up by itself. Uh, because this is another theme <laughs> that we'll see more of, that kind of the process of your imagination and memory, there is a difference. If it if it comes um, naturally or if you try to reconstruct something because then you are actively making something that belongs more to the moment now than how things really were. And we also had this feeling now that he is, from the beginning of the book, when he is falling asleep and drifting into the like half dream, half awake, and then the memory memories are coming, now he's kind of going out again and having a few reflections upon the feeling and experience of just having memories appearing in, in your mind. And... Um, how they are now <laughs> uh, he sees how partial they are like his his childhood in this little town of Combray is just two floors in the staircase in some sense because that's what he's remembering the most okay so uh, we're gonna stop this one here and uh, hope some of this was interesting some food for thought and as always thank you so much for listening and see you again next time